Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show. Ah, It's not every day we get to come to you live from beautiful Boscobel, Wisconsin. And Greg, did you know that Boscobel is the wild turkey hunting capital of Wisconsin? And to prove it, I'm standing next to a colossal turkey. I resent that. Well, uh, no, not not you as a turkey. We could talk about that later. Oh, that Why, turkey? That turkey. Holy that turkey. smokes, that's a big turkey. Yep. And it's no wonder they have a tank just down the street. You might need it for hunting turkeys like this. <laughs> and I would actually hate to operate a turkey call that would call in turkeys like that. Well, I've hauled a regular turkey out of the woods, Brad, and I'd... Don't know how you would begin to haul that turkey out. You'd have to quarter it. I, I think it would take a two-man team to get this baby out of the I woods. can see I'm just walking down the street with a drumstick sticking out my back. <laughs> well, as you know, Greg, Boscobel is also home to the Wilson Nursery. As part of Wisconsin's reforestation program, the Wilson Nursery produces approximately 3 to 5 million bare root seedlings per year for reforestation and conservation purposes. And today, we're here to pick the brains of the reforestation program staff on what makes tree seedlings succeed or fail. Joining us today are Joe Vandehei, reforestation team leader and state nursery superintendent, Roger Boinger, assistant manager for the Wilson State Nursery, and Jeremiah Auer, regeneration specialist. Well, that's excellent because I know if you want to learn how to successfully grow trees, you should talk to your nursery managers because they've seen it all, really, when it comes to growing and planting trees from establishing or seeding to the establishment of those seedlings. So let's go find those guys. Today's episode of Silvcast is brought to you by the Nelson Paint Company. Since 1940, foresters all over North America have relied on Nelson Paint for tree marking solutions. Nelson Paint manufactures paint designed to withstand the harshest weather conditions in the field and the Nelspot tree guns have lasted the test of time. Visit nelsonpaint.com to learn more about their products. Looking for heavy-duty construction and forestry equipment? Check out McCoy Construction and Forestry, your John Deere dealer. With 16 dealerships spanning the Midwest, McCoy offers new or used construction and forestry equipment, rental, parts and service, and product support. Visit McCoyCF.com and follow them on social media to see what McCoy has to offer. The Family Forest Carbon Program pays landowners to improve the health of their land and increase the long-term value of their property. The program equips landowners with resources and support to implement sustainable practices that help them reach their goals while also improving the health of their forests and our planet. To learn more about how you can access these benefits for your forests, visit FamilyForestCarbon.org. And now, back to the show. Silvacast is on the road. Today, we're coming to you from the bucolic wonderland that is Boscobel, Wisconsin, home of Wisconsin's Wilson State Nursery. With us today are Joe Vandehey, reforestation team leader and Wisconsin State Nursery Superintendent, Roger Bowringer, the assistant manager here at the Wilson State Nursery, and Jeremiah Auer, a regeneration specialist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. We'll start picking your brains in a second, but first, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? So I'm Joe Vandehei. I've been the uh, reforestation team leader, nursery superintendent for the past, uh, I guess, seven years or so. I've uh, been nursery superintendent since 1998. Um, I guess, and in that time and previous work, I've I've worked in uh, nurseries and tree improvement for about 35 years now. Wow. So you wouldn't be, so if we were using analogies of things, you wouldn't be a seedling. You would be like pulp and burning. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You're getting close to getting All right. Yeah. <laughs> Rotate. Rotate. <laughs> Thinning needed. Thinning needed. <laughs> Jeremiah, how about you? Oh, um, so I'm Jeremiah Auer, and I'm the regeneration specialist, and really that means that I assist customers uh, growing and establishing seedlings and turning those seedlings and seeds into forests. Mm -hmm. um, I also handle outreach stuff and um, seed procurement for the for the reforestation program. 
Um, I work out of Wisconsin Rapids at the Griffith State Nursery, and I've been a forester for about 21 years and at the nursery for 16. Um, I'm Roger Boinger. I've been here at the nursery for, I just got a pin that says 25 years. <laughs> um, I started here as a tech one month before Joe started, actually. You have to rub that in once in a while. Over the years, I've kind of changed jobs, and I'm currently the assistant manager. I'm kind of in charge of the day-to-day -day operations here at the nursery, you know, fertilize this, water that, root prune that. Um, I don't get to leave the fence much. But I used to look at, <laughs> I used to get out and look at plantings. That's sort of a past life. And Brad, um, part of our um, idea here to talk to all of you today is you kind of went around the room and said how many years of experience you have. And my math is really terrible, but I think it's probably upwards of around 75 years of combined experience between all of you. And so if there's anybody who's an expert on how to grow trees, on what are the challenges, how to be successful, we thought this group right here is the group to talk to. Yeah. And as you all know, and foresters all know, it's not about, oh, we'll just stick a tree in the ground and walk away and it'll grow. There's so much more to it than that. And so I think this is a really great group and opportunity to pick your brains on how to do it right. And I know, Jeremiah, you've worked with the reforestation monitoring program. So I think one thing maybe unique about Wisconsin DNR's reforestation program is we actually have a detailed monitoring program. Can you say something about that? Yeah, we've been uh, following tree plantations um, since really 2006, but more uh, probably in earnest since 2015. That's our new protocol kind of got started. Mm -hmm. And we follow typically between 50, usually it's about 15 public sites and 15 private sites every year. We establish semi-permanent plots on each one of those, depending on the size, depends on how many plots. And then we, uh, we do go back every after the third growing season and the seventh growing season and our goal is to find out how many of those have become established and become successful so we refer to success as it's free to grow outside the influence of maybe uh, critters deer rabbits stuff like that and competition just how well the seedlings actually are doing their health and all that kind of stuff so yeah we've been following quite a bit um a lot of trees over the years I would say right now we are more successful than we are not. However, there is definitely room for improvement. Yeah. And so we continue to work with public and private um, land managers and landowners to, to get better. And there's a lot of like detailed information, right? You collect on those monitoring sites about the seedlings. Yeah, we collect uh, everything that has to do with how the seedlings were established. So what the landowner land manager did to get those established, whether it's chemical site preparation or mechanical site preparation, the landowner's goals. Um, and then each individual seedling is pretty much followed. We just about name every one of them so that we can go back and we can see them in a couple of different after a few growing seasons. And yeah, we follow everything from uh, height and uh, competition to deer herbivory. Um, all sorts of different stuff we uh, take a look at. So I just wanted to highlight that because I think that gives all of you a unique perspective on, you know, having data and information on these sites, as well as just your field experience and what you've seen. Combine those two things together. What Brad and I would like to talk about really is why do tree plantings succeed or fail? What yeah. are the things that are most important for people to consider and look at? particularly foresters. Silvacast is oriented towards foresters. So really get into the weeds, so to speak, and <laughs> and talk about what do we do well and where can we improve? Yeah. And it's going to be kind of picking your brain and your experience because, you know, as foresters, we go out, we plant trees, and then we walk away a lot of times. We've got other things to do. We come back later and some of them are dead. We don't know why, but something happened between when it went in the ground and when we came back. And so you guys have that more experience and as our opportunity to kind of maybe tease or pull those threads a little bit too, kind of see where they go. So I kind of open it up to the three of you. What's most important? Well, I, just to kind of get it started a little bit. So I, I would suggest that the most important is actually the relationship between the forester and the person that's actually planting the seedlings, yeah. whether that's a public land manager or a private landowner. Um, some folks don't quite realize what it actually takes to be successful. Um, there's a lot of effort involved. It's not just like you said, you don't just plunk them in and wander off. Um, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And that 
that can mean any number of things. It could be chemical maintenance, you know, spraying um, herbicides over the top to keep the weeds down. It could be keeping the critters off. Um, it could be making sure that the farmer next door doesn't mow them over. Um, it could be a whole bunch of stuff. So there's a lot of things that are involved. And as long as everybody's on the same page to start, that usually means that you're going to be doing better. So having a written plan, um, that kind of stuff really is helpful for landowners because um, we won't always be available. And have you guys looked at that written plan aspect of landowners that do have a written plan? Are they more successful? We do record that when we go and uh, look at all the different plant, the plantings that I uh, mentioned earlier. Um, and we do follow that. And we have found, and statistically, I guess we'd have to, I'm, I'm not the best at math. <laughs> but I, You're in good company. Yeah, there you go. What's well, your P-value on it? Yeah, right. <laughs> in general, if you have a written plan, we are more successful than not. If we are, if we are not, if we have not created a plan, have not worked with forestry staff, um, customers tend to be less successful. Mm -hmm. Well, that's yeah. as far as I can go with that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what the data is right on top of my head. I just looked at it. I want to say it's 75 percent of customers or landowners with a plan are successful, and it's less than 50 percent are successful yeah. if they do not have a plan. Yeah, closer to 40, but yeah, yeah. yeah. It's probably evidence of commitment too, in some ways, right? Like if you're willing to go through a plan, you're probably willing to go through things to kind of perpetuate some of that stuff too. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what Jeremiah and Greg both said though, is I, I think for the most part, a lot of people just don't understand how big a commitment it is yeah. to put in trees. You can't just put trees in the ground and walk away. That's right. just not an option. And there's a lot of people come into it with no idea what they're getting into. I mean, every year i I talk people out of planting trees. <laughs> they call to order and they start explaining the situation. I'm like, yeah, talk to your forester and do this next year. You're not ready to do this. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of legwork to do before the seedlings ever leave the nursery to make sure you have a place to put them. Yeah. And I think, I think even then, so once the trees, you, you do your, you know, you do your site prep and the trees go into ground in spring, you got this nice current clean planting. You know, there's really no competition out there and people don't realize how fast that competition goes in. They may see grass that's a half inch taller thing mm -hmm. and think, oh, no big deal. Come back two months later and you have... Uh, trees disappeared. Yeah, you've got grass and everything, uh, foxtail that's completely enveloped everything. So I'm just curious, when you guys say a certain percentage of the plantings are successful, what is success? Like, have you learned from the monitoring program kind of what is a typical survival rate from plantings that we see in Wisconsin? We we do have a definition for success and it is um, seedlings that are free to grow, right? So that mm -hmm. we talked about that earlier um, after the seventh growing season. But I'll be honest, after about, after the first and almost, almost certainly after the third, you can almost tell what's going to happen come the seventh. So you know if you need to mm -hmm. take some drastic measures, for instance, if something's happening. Um, if you've got like you know joe mentioned if you've got six foot tall reed canary grass everywhere in order to be successful you're really going to do a little bit more work there so we we can tell um as far as um what is success um it is a little bit different you know for different uh, landowners for folks but i mean if you're getting 80 percent of your trees through that first year and into the third growing season you tend to do quite well and you will do pretty well and you will capture a site Hmm. Um, of course, it all depends on objectives and goals. Some folks start off with 500 trees per acre, and when they have 250, they're ecstatic. Other folks that put in 1,200 and only end up with 800 are crestfallen. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of depends originally, you know, on what the thoughts were. So you get people, so the people that are committed and do lots of stuff, they're, they've got a better chance of success, and you can tell fairly early. What are some of the things that you might have people who are committed, but maybe they aren't successful. What are some of those things that kind of like you can identify and go, oh, well, you didn't take care of this or you didn't take care of what are some of the common things that like cause a, a failure? Deer browse is probably one of the big ones. Um, you know, we're trying to trying to get landowners set up and recognize that deer are going to be a problem. And are they willing to shoot deer ahead of time or do what they need to control that population? But I don't I don't think ultimately people recognize the damage that deer can do on a plantation and set that plantation back. They yeah. just they don't see it even necessarily when it's happening until it's almost too late. You know, those trees have been browsed for three years and they're they're just they're really struggling. And yeah. at that point it's hard to bring them back out if you still got the deer out there. And yeah, so I think deer are a big one of them. Yeah, mice and rabbits can be a problem in certain areas, especially a lot of grass, especially mice. They can be terrible. We've lost a lot of plantings to mice. Um, they just chew the heck out of everything. Sometimes folks just make mistakes. Sometimes there's a lot of enthusiasm and you just spray a little bit too much. 
So we got to uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> work with folks to kind of recognize that maybe they don't need to do certain things. Um, I know we, Roger and I ran into that a number of times. The overzealous landowner is fantastic, but it, we also sometimes need to oh, yeah. back things up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, they'll complain about their horrible weed problem. And it's like, can you see the trees? Because if you're on the road and you can see them, the weeds aren't that bad. They'll come up through it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you do have to talk people down once in a while, but usually it's the opposite. They don't think they really have a problem. And it's like, you're going to lose these this winter. You got, you know, how many thousands of foals per square foot out there. And you're going to lose these trees if you don't control this vegetation a little bit. Yeah. So is uh, competing veg uh, a number, another major reason why people are lose their plantings or have poor survival than they would like? And I, is that a yes? Yeah. yeah. I see you guys nodding. Oh, yeah. This is a podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say competing vegetation is definitely yeah. one, of the, one of the primary issues. Well, especially heavy grass. Heavy, heavy grass are grass. the yes. worst. Um, yeah. The, the, the broadleaves aren't as bad. I mean, they can be a problem, but they're typically not as big. People get nervous about goldenrod taking over everything, but it usually doesn't really impact seedlings all that much. Yeah, there's very few trees that won't come up through goldenrod. Yeah, they're not the water comp competitors that yeah. the grass is. Yeah, the reed canaries and the quack. Those yeah. Are the so, yeah, so those are the primary ones for the grass. Those yeah. are the big problems. Yeah, are, there, think, are there grasses that aren't a problem? Like if you were planting, could you put a grass in there that might not be or, or maybe seize the site and wouldn't cause as much of a problem? Oh, the cover crops like rye are perfectly fine. That yeah. doesn't really impact trees at all. Heck, we use them at the nursery. And I yeah, other than you don't want them up against the trees. Right. Right. You right. still want that, right. that right. band clear. And like your annual grass is like crabgrass. I don't get real excited about that. Giant foxtail is an annual grass, and that can be a huge problem because the first hand of snow, it goes flat and smothers the trees underneath it. Yeah. yeah. The other, the other one that can be a problem is alfalfa. So you got an old fallow field that um, you, you do your site prep and everything, and you, you think you got everything dead. And then all of a sudden you just released the alfalfa. Yeah. And that can come exploding back. And that can be a problem. Yeah. How about if you were in the <laughs> in the woods? So say you were doing an enrichment planting or a supplemental planting into a site. Is there interfering vegetation at all that you might like invasives or anything else you might worry about there? Or is it just you're in the woods, so everything's gonna get you? The understory plantings are always a challenge because you do have that, you know, you have that overstory. So you just got to yeah. uh, make sure that what you're planting is appropriate for that site. You know, you would put sugar maple in, right? Those nice sites that have a little bit of 50%, right? Shade yeah. or whatever. I um, certainly don't want to put oak in those because no matter what you do, it's not going to matter. But yeah, typically it, within the woods, um, boy, the competing, I, I haven't run into competing vegetation within the woods being that big of a deal. Um, other things within the woods well, tend to be the yeah. problem. The one thing that comes to mind for me is... You know, usually if you're doing an underplanting, you're taking the canopy off eventually. eventually yeah. So if they've done, say, a shelter wood or something and letting a little sunlight in and you get the blackberry brambles blowing up, then the rabbits can be a huge nuisance because yeah. yeah. suddenly you've turned a, from an oak woods to a rabbit habitat yeah. and you're putting tasty oak seedlings in there for them. Yeah. So there it sounds like you might just have to keep monitoring it because if changes occur, then you might have a change in, in what's interfering. Or increase the rabbit hunting population of the area. <laughs> yeah. That'd be an idea. Yeah. Don't shoot the coyotes, right? Yeah, away. I, I, I stress that to people all the time. Like, if they're planting trees and like leave the coyotes alone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, everybody thinks they have to save a fawn and shoot a coyote. It's I like think he, Roger, you made an important point. I thought it took me a while to learn, at least in the field planting situation, where you have those annual or broadleaf weeds. Those aren't necessarily a big problem to realize that and to recognize where and what types of vegetation is the problem is sometimes something that doesn't come, you know, it, it's not intuitive. Yeah. It took me a while to see that when I used to go out and do the monitoring. And it was actually, um, to drop names, Gary Zielski up in Pierce County, mm -hmm. who he was a forester during the CRP years, you know, and those guys planted semi loads of trees every year and i was out looking at a planting with him and it was it looked kind of weedy you know the field was weedy but it was mostly dandelions and chicory and stuff like that and, and i made some comment about oh the weed control is not that bad or, or not that great and, and he's like oh i kind of like seeing this stuff in there and that was sort of my light bulb moment that yeah 
and then I've since seen sites in a year like this where it's kind of droughty and it's moonscape, you know, a perfect chemical use. And there's just not a weed anywhere and the trees are dead because they're just out there baking in the sun with no shade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas the weedy sites may be pulling through it. Yeah. As long as it's, you know, annual yeah, broad not, leaves not and too, not grass. Too dense. So I think that's an important point that's not often intuitive to see. I want to just back up a sec. You all are lifting and handling and shipping. What kinds of problems do you see on that end of things, mistakes that are made, either by us, the professionals, or the landowners themselves? So one of the things that, you know, we we could have go wrong on us in here is, um, I think it happens most with hardwood, is is we're trying to lift um, at a depth that is about eight inches of root on that plant. So it's reasonable for that landowner to get that root in the ground. Occasionally, the, we just can't get the lifter through and they end up going deeper. So they get more of a root. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem that runs into that, the problem we run into with that is when a landowner gets a 10, 12 inch root, then they want to root prune. Mm. And then they tend to root prune too short because, oh, if I come down to here, it's easier for me to get that tree in the ground. And yeah. that probably happens more with contractors doing the planting because they're thinking i want to make this as easy as i can on myself yeah and so they end up over pruning something that we didn't prune enough here in the nursery mm-hmm. so that's one of the things that i can see mm-hmm. happening on our end so is root pruning important for the planting job to be successful depending uh, on how they do it yeah i mean you, you um you know when you're all planting a lot of trees i mean you're not going to want to dig a 10, 12, 14 inch hole every time you got to stick a tree in the ground. So you got to get a reasonable root there, yeah. but you got to make sure you get enough root um, because that root has to support that plant. Then it's trying to get itself reestablished. So, you know, somewhere between that six and eight inch root on a hardwood is what's going to be ideal. And it's different if you're planting by hand or machine. If you're doing yeah. machine, it's a whole different world because that, you know, that furrow is there. So you don't really have to prune it too hard. Um, sometimes, you know, there's always that straggler that's like two feet long. For heaven's sakes, and you can set that guy back. But um, if you're doing it by hand, whole different world than if you're doing it machine. Yeah, I think we've all had that experience having to dibble in one hand and a, a, a seedling with roots like that. And you're like, these don't match. <laughs> yeah. This is not going to work. Yep. I need a front end loader. Yeah. And that goes back to, you know, one of the things that Jeremiah, as I know, has observed out in the monitoring is um, planting depth mm-hmm. and either planting too deep or too shallow. Planting too, um, I think most people recognize that planting too shallow is a problem, but you see that, you know, you'll see, you know, two inches of root sticking up out of the ground. But mm-hmm. I don't think people recognize as much how planting too deep is also a problem. So de- does that depend on species? Usually the, uh, usually the hardwoods can handle being a little deeper. I, I don't want to say that because as soon as you say that, right? There, <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah. That's, that's, there's, a, yeah. there's but, a big difference between a sugar maple and a small. Yeah. 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 Give us a relative depth, like like what's too deep on a hardwood. So whenever we do the monitoring, we our, our blanket statement, and I, I think it's appropriate for everything, is that if it's over two inches either way, too deep or too shallow, you're going to run into trouble eventually. So, I mean, you know, one of my comments to a lot of landowners is that, you know, trees are not like tomatoes. If we bury them all the way to the bottom, they don't send out roots. Right. They tend to just get rotten and then break off in a couple of years, which is unfortunate, but it certainly happens. Um, uh, root, root collar weevils and root rots, anything that's compromised there, they will yeah. they will go after right away. So, yeah, um but we have a root collar for a reason. That's where they should be planted. I know there's, you know, sometimes it's a challenge to get it like that, but um, it really should be within, oh, it should be within two inches. It'd be better if it was right at the surface, right? Um, that's what's ideal. That's what we suggest here. And conifers are more sensitive to that? I would say conifers are more sensitive typically, especially the pine. Mm-hmm. And that's what we sell the most of. That's what goes out and gets mm-hmm. planted the most. So, yeah. You know, we're probably seeing, I think on average right now, 40% of the conifers in the monitoring yeah. program are planted too deep. Too deep yeah. Wow. Well, that's interesting. I wouldn't have guessed yeah. it would be that much. Yeah. It's getting better because yeah. we we're stressing it more. Um, but yeah, it's there are years that it's even worse. Even worse, but it, yeah. it is getting better. So we should definitely um, comment on that. Our and that tip, you know, the large scale plantings with conifers tend to be on our public lands. Yeah, and that's when we have our contracts who, who do great. To be honest, if I had to put in eight thousand trees a day in order to make you know what I needed to do. I'd probably find a way to cut a corner. Yeah. Um. You know, sometimes you feel like you have to. 
But, uh, and sometimes you might think the bigger and deeper the furrow, the better. Yeah. So there it's kind of almost scaling it back a little bit or kind of really dialing that in, which sometimes you don't think about. Yeah, that's where it's uh, just great for uh, folks to work with people that actually know what's going on so that you can actually recognize that um, if we drop that tree planter down a foot and a half, it's really not doing anything. It's just plowing extra dirt and creating a giant furrow and you don't need that taxing yeah. your tractor more and that kind of thing. And that that reminds me that one of the important things I always tell people is like, it's like machine planning. You need a driver, you need a planner. You you need somebody walking behind the planner because the guy on the planner cannot see if he's doing it right or not. He could be planting every tree three inches too deep and he's not going to know unless he either stops the tractor and gets out and looks yeah. or somebody's walking behind him and tells him, hey, you're too deep. Yeah. And if that guy's got a shovel so he can fix bad ones, better yet, paying for that seed and you might as well get it right joe i know a number of years ago just thinking back about handling seedlings again we ran some experiments by putting temperature monitoring devices in boxes and shipments and so what did we learn out of that experiment um we learned that um, conifers are more sensitive than hardwoods to temperatures and the colder we can keep the seedlings closer to refrigeration the better they are especially the conifers mm -hmm. um, the hardwoods um, are more forgiving i think all around when it comes to that uh, that lifting processing distribution transportation end of it than are the conifers but i, but I think that's because the conifers have their needles there you know they're waking up they're they're waking up they're starting to break normalcy in the spring and they're wanting to grow they're generating they're generating heat yeah. mm -hmm. that isn't coming from the hardwoods so it's more critical, I think, to control that temperature mm. on those conifers. And we've uh, we've been we monitor our conifers um, in the coolers. So we're we're storing the coolers here at 34 degrees, and we monitor temperature. And I'm amazed at how long it takes to chill a box of conifers. You lift them; it's 50 degrees outside. You put them in a cooler, and it takes days to get that box of conifers down to. 35 and when we can't get it down to cooler temperature the conifers mm -hmm. don't go to cooler temperature you yeah, know they're, they're still all... respiring in that box yeah. and yep. producing heat producing heat yep mm -hmm. yep and we did have one we had one time where the cooler shut down on us and i was amazed at how fast those conifers heated up so um, that's the other side of it is if you're not in cold storage i mean yeah how quickly they generated that heat and heated themselves up to the point where they spoiled so which conifers can spoil um, if you're storing them too warm. You know, you got 60, 70 degree temperatures and you try to store conifers like that for a week, it's not going to work. Yeah. So that's a question that I think comes up a lot, especially with landowners who may not have ideal storage and foresters. How long can I store these trees? How long can I hang on to my trees? Have you heard that question? <laughs> oh, once or twice. Yeah. Yeah. Once or twice. <laughs> and you say, what do you say? I say, Plant them as soon as you can. Um, and then I tell them if it's a mixed planting, give the conifers priority. If you only have limited time, get your conifers planted. The hardwoods will keep um, the conifers. I, you have a, a week at most to get those conifers in the ground if, if, if the weather's warm. Unless you have some decent place to store them. Yeah, they're yeah. probably storing them in a barn or something. Yeah. Yep. Or, I mean, that would be the best case scenario, right? <laughs> There's <Yeah>. other worst, <laughs> yeah. worst case yep. scenarios. Yep. So, and, and then I'll tell them, you know, get those boxes spread out. Don't have don't have 10 boxes sitting in the back of your pickup truck. Get them down right. on the concrete floor where it's a little bit cooler. Do everything you can. Mm -hmm. But the main thing is get them planted. I always thought we needed a network of bars and foresters that you could connect because sometimes they have like uh coolers, beer coolers. you know for beer coolers <laughs> and it's like you got extra space have i got something to put in you know <laughs> the folks up at the superior um they just planted last week and they kept all of their seedlings in the uw superior food storage building at the what, what i don't know what they're how they feed their kids but yeah, they were all sitting right in there, right next to where the burgers should have been. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they pulled all the food out and yeah. put the trees in there, and they were perfect. 36 degrees. Wow. It was perfect. Yeah. So, so and, and that's what we found out. Some of the studies, Jeremiah just did a uh, storage study. So we were just trying to find out how long we can store these things, you know, because we get these uh, with EAB. There's a lot more bottomland plantings going on. Mm -hmm. So folks can't get in and plant in the month of April and May because 
the, the site is flooded. So we're, they're pushing plantings. We're seeing more and more plantings getting planted in June. And uh, Jeremiah can talk more on it, but there's clearly some species we can store till then. And there's others that they're just not going to make it. Yeah. Conifers tend to not like the tamaracks and the black spruce of the world tend not to do well being planted late. We planted as late as July and the swamp oak didn't seem to care at all. Yeah. Mm. And they did just fine. Same with a couple of the birch and some of the maples, but conifers did not like that. So on those wet sites with the conifers, would you go to a fall planting or how do you get around that wet site? Yeah, if you're going to go with a fall planting, or I mean, if you want to put conifers in on the site, then you're probably looking at a fall planting. Yeah. So, um, fall planted conifers have their own headaches, especially in a wet site with frosty even. Yeah. And so that is a workaround there. We, we've done it, we've had people do it successfully, but and fall planting is kind of a new frontier, though, too. Is I mean, we don't really do a ton of it. Right. Yeah. The other challenge you've got with fall planting is it's a timing thing. When you commit to us taking the trees out of the ground for you, and if your flight do site does flood out, we have no ability to store those trees yet because right. we haven't, they have not gone dormant in the nursery yet. We're lifting so that you've got time to get them in the ground and let them get established on the site. And if all of a sudden be between the time that we lift till you plant, you flood out, yeah, we just don't have that ability to store at that point. So how late in the fall could you plant, like say in dry or wet sites that you could still, like, is it just a matter of getting the trees in the ground in the fall then? Yeah, it's, it's you want to plant as soon as possible. And I, I think either late September or October, you know, I think we've had some folks try in November plantings, but again, that tree is just not getting a lot of chance to root itself in, like Roger said. And Well, and I... I don't like lifting them until they've at least changed, you know, hardwoods have at least gone through a color change. I want right. to know they're on their path to dormancy before we go in there and put a lifter in the ground. Because if you go in there and lift green hardwoods, that's that's a huge shock to their right. system. And they're probably not going to make it through the winter. Yeah. And, and maybe just back up. So so we always we've traditionally always done it in the spring, but you know, as we look forward, everybody talks about this need to plant more trees. Is that something we should be considering more? Is you only may have so much, you know, like thinking about contractors and just the ability to do stuff, should we be considering or thinking about certain sites besides if it's wet, just yeah, fall might be a suitable option? Or should we say, well, under certain conditions? I think that's where I go is it's yeah. under certain conditions. If you got the conditions that just can't make it happen in spring, then the fall planting is probably your answer. But otherwise, I just think a spring planting is better yeah um i think on average now i look at this year and i maybe i'm gonna change my tune because, but you can have the same we had the same issue last fall yeah. we went into winter right. last fall bone dry right and that's a challenge on those trees you've just mm -hmm. established because yeah they're gonna desiccate over winter mm -hmm. so yeah. logistically uh, fall planning in our climate is just it's tough because the window from when the trees go dormant and can be lifted to the ground freezes up and you can't plant them anymore. Right. If you don't, one, you don't know what that window is going to be. And it might be a week and a half. It, it might be, you can plant December 20th, but you right. can't bet on that. Right. Whereas you get farther South, well, they can kind of bet on a winter planting season. We yeah. don't, we don't have that option here. Yep. Yeah. In fact, that's when most of the planting gets done down South is throughout the winter. I mean, anytime they're not, there's not frost in the ground, which can, is, yeah, put they're, they're going to be out planting. Yeah. Let's transition and talk a little bit about stock types. It's a complicated subject. I know a lot of different uh, caveats in terms of that, but in terms of bare root stock, what would be an ideal size of a seedling? The ideal size of a seedling? I'm going to throw this broad question out to <laughs> you and it goes like, oh, geez. <laughs> Yeah, that's got so a lot. Of, I'm gonna, yeah, it's there's got, a lot of variables because the yeah. first time the question asked the question I'm gonna throw back at you is how do you intend to plant? Are you gonna machine plant or are you gonna hand plant? Fair, yep, fair enough question. Yep. If uh, you're gonna hand plant, then you're gonna typically want a smaller seedling. Mm -hmm. Um it's it's gonna be easier to get the root in the ground and everything um with a dibble bar or a shovel, however you're gonna plant. If you're machine planting, you can typically get away with a bigger tree and it's actually easier to plant a little bit bigger tree in a machine. Yeah. Okay. Let's 
I'll give you the more specifics, okay. then, Joe. So, okay, uh, let's talk the ideal oak seedling. I'm going to be planting by hand, yep. say, um, in a shelter wood setting, in an understory type of setting. What kind of seedling do I want to look at for that? Um, probably one a one seedling is ideal. Okay. Which is going to give you, I mean, we're going to shoot for about, again, a six to an eight inch root. And all, all the hardwoods get top cut anyways. And so, you know, pe people always, they're always, a lot of people are concerned about the height of the tree. And really it's about put a hardwood is really about putting a root in the ground. So you need a handle to put a root in the ground. And the only reason for the top is to get that in the ground. And for us in the nursery to develop that root system for you. Mm -hmm. That's really what it is. So we need a vigorous top to develop a vigorous root system that you can then put in the ground. So for a one oak seedling on an oak, um, what kind of like we're, caliper are we looking at? We're typically looking at uh, three sixteenths caliper on an oak would be about the minimum that we would want target somewhere okay. right in there. A minimum, yeah, and um, and then we want laterals on the root system. Mm -hmm. So um, and to me, the root system and the caliper are the height really doesn't. I, I try to tell people the height really doesn't matter to me. It's about caliper and it's about root system. Yeah. That's what mm -hmm. it's about. Hmm. I know we've <laughs> talked about the caveat to that in terms of height is maybe lowland plant things where people actually do still want the top, right? Yeah. Um, Cause they want to, they might be flooding out and they want to keep some plant above the, right. Yeah. Uh, above the water. Sort of the, what is that? The, uh, periscope uh, oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Yep. keep it head above water yeah it's head above water yep. but in an uplands set setting that's not important it's not important at all no nope. yeah so how about machine planting then on that oak seedling you could go bigger I yeah presume. you can easily go to a two-year-old seedling it's going to mm -hmm. give you more laterals mm -hmm. um probably looking at a quarter inch minimum root or a caliper that we're going to have on that plant but you wouldn't want it you can get too big also you know, we get um, occasionally we'll get seedlings in the bed and it's like, look at that seedling. The thing is just gorgeous. Uh, but yeah, on the grade belt, there are hardwoods that hit the floor because they're too big. You look at it and like, I don't want to try wrestling that thing into a yeah. trench. And nobody else is going to want to do it either. So yeah, it hits the floor. Yeah. And if it was in, if it was an ornamental setting, person was planting it in their yard, no yeah. big deal. I'd be all yeah. over that tree. But when you got uh, a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand of those to put in the ground, and you got to fight a bunch of those, ain't going to happen. Yeah. They're not mm -hmm. going to get planned, right? They're going to be dead anyways. Mm -hmm. Do you so, see that, Jeremiah, on those uh, outplant things in terms of them maybe not getting those bigger seedlings at a proper depth because they just can't get that big root system in? Yeah, that, you know, that, yeah, you'll see that quite a bit if it's a large oaks, especially, especially if they're doing it by hand, um, especially if it's at, you can tell when it's at the end of the day when they want to dig oh, quite yeah. as deep as they did maybe when they started in the morning. Yeah. Starting to get a little hotter and drier. Um, but yeah, you'll see that where the, the large ones, we just can't, it's hard for folks like us who know what we have to do. And even, you know, by the hundredth one, I'm even rethinking what I did, you know, and what yeah. I decided. Yeah. So, yeah. And to ask a landowner or somebody, you know, a contractor to do that is, yeah, yeah. same challenge. And machine planning, you'll be going down the row and they're maintaining their six foot or eight foot or whatever spacing. And then I'll you'll see this big gnarly oak and it's, planted half in the ground and half yeah. out mm -hmm. and then the next two trees are missing because they're they were fighting <laughs> sometimes it's better if you get that really big one you just pitch it over your shoulder and grab a different one. yeah which yeah. is why we try to yeah, pull them out back and plant them with a spade is they yeah you know, yep. yep. really want it yep. and kind of irony of you're the biggest and you're the best but you're going to lose yeah this one yeah people don't want you yep yeah. yeah it's a it is all kind of about efficiency when you got a truckload of seedlings to yeah. get in the ground yeah. do you see any differences in like where that stock is coming from so like for the seed source if you have seeds coming from different parts of the state does that make a difference on how they're going to perform turning into a 10 or a 20 for the for, for making those recommendations yeah there's no there's no doubt as as we bring you know when we're growing seed from the north anywhere you grow it versus you bring in more southerly seed the seedlings are typically bigger from a more southerly seed source mm. you'll get a bigger seedling would be typical um not always the case because it's probably partly related to the acorn size you know for example the bigger the acorn the bigger the seedling mm -hmm. the bigger the pine seed um, and people say, well, there's a difference in, yeah, 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 yeah. There, there, there is a significant yeah. difference in, you know, and we see it even, uh, 
you know, a species that we're getting the seed from the same county, but one produces a bigger seed and the other one produces a smaller seed, there will be a difference in seedling size. Hmm. And so. we bring in seed from the entire state and just outside the state. So, I mean, we have seed coming in from Ashland County all the way down to Kenosha. So we tend to see a wide variety of seed size. Um, and we just have to figure out how we're going to deal with that. Yeah, yeah, that's where we we really get in, and we've we have had a lot of discussions on this over over the the years. From a nursery perspective, we're about uniformity in our seed beds uh, because we want every seed that goes in the ground to produce a saleable seedling because that's revenue for us. Yep. But at the same time, we recognize that for for the health of our forests in Wisconsin, we want diversity going out on the landscape. So we want a, a customer to receive a diversified batch of seedlings. We don't want it all from one tree because we sized it and then, mm. you know, they end up with a very narrow genetic mm-hmm. line. And so we're sacrificing seedlings, having more culls in our bed in order to get the customer yeah. diversity. And we have other challenges than trying to do that. It's harder for us to take inventory when we don't have uniform beds and stuff like that. So it's kind of a, a give and take to get that. So we have that discussion. Okay, how far can we push this before we don't have the diversity that we yeah. want the customer to have? Because that's important. Yeah. In the and you know that's really cool too because I can imagine like as a as a landowner or as a land manager. You plant the seedlings, you know the species, you know you're thinking 30 or 40 years down the line or more, but you guys are thinking even more than that. You're you're thinking about all the other stuff. So so the landowner doesn't have to consider that. You've already considered it as a part of this. Yeah. You know, I, I, climate change is the big thing right now. And whether we're warming or cooling, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We want to make sure that that mix of trees that's out there has what it takes to survive whatever the climate's going to throw at it. I think even foresters don't often realize from the nursery standpoint, the logistical challenge of seed, of collecting enough seed um, on a consistent basis, right? And of the seed sources you want, and then managing all of those seed sources. Is that one of your major challenges from a nursery standpoint? I have to do it. It's like sighing. Jeremiah sighing. All you have to do is spend an hour picking white pine cones when they're in full maturity to know that it is a challenge to, yeah. to collect seed. Um, and trees, you know, I, I often say the trees are not like corn or soybeans. They do not mature at the same time. Like, right, you know, 100 day corn is 100 day corn. Done. Um, trees are not like that. Um, they are impacted so much by the environment and so much by their own whims, I think. Um, last year is a good example. Um, white oak in the southern part of the state was rather scarce. I mean, it was here, but there wasn't a lot. And the Fox River Valley was just loaded. I mean, we had Hmm. white oak, probably half of our white oak acorns came from the greater Fox River Valley last year. Um, we had it from all over, but that's just where the majority was. And the majority of our red oak came from down here just because no other place had red oak, even in the North. Um, they just didn't have it. So the challenge of getting seed, um, and, Thank God we have a network of foresters that helps us out a lot. There's a lot of folks out there that have seed on their radar, um, but it's still a challenge. And the seed collecting community is a very narrow community filled with eclectic characters <laughs> that um, are very focused on um, the bottom line and what it takes to get what they what we need and what you know and that kind of stuff. So um, it, it's very challenging. It's fun. Yeah. Um, it's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, at times, um, especially when we need something so terribly bad and we just cannot get it and we cannot, um, if it's not there, we can't get it from anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So it's Yeah. And bad. especially if you're trying to manage by seed zones yep. and not yep. all seed zones have seed every year. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing that people don't recognize is we can't store a lot of our species. You know, we can store our pine seed right. and spruce and stuff like that. But we can't store acorns. We can't store walnut. And so we're completely at the mercy of the crop that year. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we'll have folks say, well, how come you can never have enough of this? It's like, because I can't get enough of seed yeah. on a consistent mm-hmm. basis every year. Um, where other species, we can store conifers for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so, yeah, we can build that bank and, yeah. and keep it. Now, we can still get into trouble with conifers as well. And we're running in that with red pine because red pine has not had a good cone crop in years. And huh. so we are quickly running out. It's, and it's, 
it's a problem across the entire um, Great Lakes. Um, there is a dire shortage of red pine seed out there. Mm. Um, what do you guys think is causing that? Collectors are getting old. <laughs> it's not the easiest seed to collect. I mean, yeah. the, you know, red pine does not. Like white pine will all and, and white spruce concentrate all their cones up in the top. Really easy to see. I mean, you can see it from a mile away. Red pine is scattered across the tree. Um, they're impacted by, you know, seed predators all the time. Um, it's not, and it's a very narrow window to pick. Usually there's only a couple of weeks before this, the cones start to open up. So, mm. um, and yeah, Ryder's right. Um, again, that seed collecting community is very narrow and the folks that did it for a long time, um, God bless them. I'm not sure where they are. Um, yeah, some are I, probably not with us anymore. I, I blame Mark Zuckerberg. It's like <laughs> that, that cadre of people that are willing to go out and want mosquitoes and do all this hard work for a few bucks they're not there everybody's flipping through their phone you know? yeah. sound like the old codger in the room <laughs> <laughs> but there's just not that there's just not that kind of live off the land group out there anymore they all aged out they're yeah. all 65 and 70 years yeah. old and it's too hard to work. Well, they, they brand's a forager. You should get yeah. out of the <laughs> collection business. I mean, I want the seeds that I'm collecting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, and you know, the other thing, I I remember talking to seed collectors and trying to you know, go, oh, where'd you get that? And it was like prying something out of their wallet. It was like, it was proprietary knowledge. Like they were not going to tell you. you. You knew approximately, but they weren't going to tell you exactly where they got that seed. So when they go, it's like, all right, well, that seed site's gone. We do ask um, the county now. So we require that they tell us the county that they pick it, but that's about as far down as we can get with most folks Yeah, um, because they really do want to protect their spot. Yeah. It's, it's kind of fun. It's kind of funny, um, mm. but it's also a little frustrating too. Yeah, We haven't had it personally, but there have actually been fist fights that involve sheriff departments over Swamp Oak. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's a hot commodity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People get a, it's, it, it, they get a little territorial. Oh. It's uh, like any any other, you know, fishing, trapping, whatever. If your people are doing it for a living, they you get turf wars somewhat. I think that's been recognized as a national problem, actually, the whole uh, seed network. And especially with climate change and the desire to maybe move seed sources from different areas. And, you know, not everybody has access to seed collectors and in say other seed zones that they wouldn't have traditionally collected from so i think this is like a an issue that we're all facing but the uh, good news is that the resource is still there we can still get it just a matter we just have to find the best ways to get to it yeah so it still exists the cones still grow i mean they're still there we just have to find out how the best way to get those mm -hmm. and sometimes that means increasing the price that we pay um, sometimes it means um, helping folks with uh, getting maps of areas that are being recently harvested, um, especially in county forests um, and, and state forests. Um, so it is a little bit more pressure on us because we have to kind of, you know, take that extra step that maybe we wouldn't have had to in the past. Uh, but it still exists and so we can still do it. We just have to find better ways to do it. Again. It happens, um, but I think it could happen more. It's a really good opportunity for connection between nursery folks and field foresters yeah. in terms of communicating where they're seeing seed going both ways right yep. you guys know you know you know when seed crops are coming on that are good and that can help inform both natural regeneration efforts and artificial and going the other way foresters can tell you where seed crops are so i think that's a really good mm -hmm. opportunity uh for the field to work with their nurseries and just have that communication and we've been around long enough so that we have developed a lot of those relationships. So a lot of the foresters that are out there know us and know what we're looking for. And we do, I mean, I did mention earlier, we do have seed buying stations throughout the state. I mean, scattered from Rhinelander to Hayward and all the way down Horicon and, and here in Wilson Nursery. So we do have a lot of areas that folks can bring seed, a lot of foresters that are very well informed and know what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you always have to be a little bit careful because there are you know, there's a number of dem you know, more domesticated species, I guess we could call them, you know, that type mm -hmm. of thing, street trees that we yeah. really don't want to be getting seed from. Mm -hmm. um, but we have a pretty educated community, so that has been very helpful, and we continue to develop that. Good yeah. white pine crop this year, by I the noticed, way. I noticed, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> central part of the state is pretty good. Yeah. yeah, I was going to show you a picture. Yeah. Um, before we leave that stock type, um, I wanted to transition to talk about bare root versus containerized. So lots of discussion about that and, you know, lots of comparisons between performance. 
what do you guys see as where those two stock types fit together? Um, I think there's places for both. Um, you, you typically see most of the containers um, that can grow in uh, seedlings that you see out there are typically conifers. Um, and, uh, and and I think that one of the advantages to container growing is it gives you a little bit longer. You know, we talked about the planting mm-hmm. window earlier. The container gives you a, a little bit more luxury in your ability to extend that planting season. Um, but it typically is more expensive for container grown seedling versus a bare root seedling. Hardwoods, on the other hand, it becomes much more expensive to grow hardwoods in containers. They just, again, you're trying to develop a much larger root system and everything. So um, you really don't see a lot of container hardwoods out there. You see the bigger potted, you know, mm-hmm. the larger potted type ones. Yeah. But for your typical reforestation planning, it's just a container hardwoods are just really not it's cost prohibitive, I guess, um, at least at this time. But it, but it's getting more expensive for us to grow barret as well, you know. And we're seeing that margin cl- close um, with the conifers as well between the container and the uh, the barret conifer. I think the survival is slightly better, probably in the container versus the barret, but it's not it's not significant. Um, a lot of people say it's a lot easier from the plant. You know, there's a lot less issues with planting container than there are with planting bare root conifers. And I don't know that that's really true. Um, I think it comes down more to monitoring your planting crews and making sure they're planting correctly. Because yeah. when they've, yeah, when they've done comparisons, you've got to make a little bit bigger hole to do a bare root. And so it's maybe a little easier to J-root that. Mm-hmm. But if all you're doing is planting um, containers, you're not going from a bare up to a container. Uh, like Jeremiah said, you're going to start to look cut corners and you'll ulti- we'll ultimately see as many J-rooting in a container yeah. plantation as you is, would in a bare root. Is storage similar between them? Would you would you have the same concerns with heat and other things with the between those two types? Yeah, because typically your containers are actually lifted out of the styro blocks in the fall. They're overwintered or they're lifted, they're lifted out in and they're packed into boxes similar to are so that cold storage is critical for them as well. Yeah. Okay. So we've covered a bit on getting the seedlings out of the nursery and handling them and getting them in the ground this first year. But as I think all of you stated earlier, uh, there's more to be done. We can't just uh, leave them alone to be successful. So in terms of follow-up care, I know, Joe, you and I were talking about, for instance, um, this year we are in a drought. Uh, so is there anything people can do about that? Um, I guess first start pray for rain. <laughs> That's the first place I would start. Um, Next but, uh, cloud seeding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but we do get the question, do I need to be out watering my trees? Yeah. And that's a, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, because there's a lot of different scenarios that go along with trying to water planning a lot. I mean, your wildland plantings, a lot of those cases, it's just about impossible to try to get water out mm-hmm. to that planting site. Um, and then just understanding the sheer volume of water that it's actually going to take mm-hmm. to water that many trees, that many trees and water sufficiently. Mm-hmm. You know, I, for a lot of our customers that may be ordering 300 trees and they may be planting a windbreak, so um, they can stuff it. like that. Those are easy enough to go out and water, you know, um, mm-hmm. not a big deal. A lot of them that could even do it with a garden hose, you know, they could stretch it far enough. But as that number of trees grows, mm-hmm. you know, it's a CRP planting. You got 20 acres planted with 20,000 trees. You've got a lot of work there um, mm-hmm. to try to, mm-hmm. to water that many trees. Is it doable? Probably doable. Um, but uh, it's practical. Gonna t- yeah. Yeah. Yes. Is it <laughs> practical? Yeah. And is it worth it? Right. Right. You know, and um, I just kind of bring that up as just as you said, on wildlife plantings, we don't do it often because of the logistical problems with it. But I bring it up because we're dealing with it this year. So just thinking also about follow up care and maybe Jeremiah and the reforestation program, how long and what issues do people need to be looking for to get that uh, planting established? So I'd say um, you, you definitely need to be monitoring your seedlings. And if your seedlings are being impacted by competition, you need to figure something out there. If that means we need to spray, 
um, you know, that maybe that's what we need to do. Um, if it if they're being uh, nibbled on too much by critters, um, we probably need to do something about that too. Um, and, and there's, and you can do that. Um, you don't necessarily have to be out ahead all the time. Sometimes, you know, things just take over and what wasn't a problem earlier is a problem now. So um, yeah, those things you need to be monitoring just to make sure that what is, what is going on is what you want to have happen. So if you need to go spray, Let's get out there and do that. Let's knock that competition back. If you need to mow to knock down the um, habitat for little critters, probably a good idea. If you need to fence or do something to keep the deer from nibbling on your seedlings, um, we probably should do that too. Yeah. So coming full so full circle to the deer, fencing is expensive, right? Like if you're putting a fence around the entire thing. Are there any? Is there anything you've seen that's promising for people to do that maybe is lower cost but could still deal with with deer impacts? So fencing can be expensive. I mean, there's a number of things you can do. So you can you can do fencing, right? Um, then there's the individual seedling uh, tubes or cages, um, or cages, or any of that. Yeah, that kind of stuff. You can do the sprays, um, you know, to try to the um, what do they call that, Roger? Repellents. Repellents. Yeah, yeah, thank you to kind of keep the critters away from that. Usually, just means you keep people away too, which isn't as bad either, I guess, if that's what your goal is. Um, but you know, <laughs> people. Yeah, well, yeah, people. <laughs> but yeah, so you know, there's a number of things you can do. Um, fencing tends to be less expensive in the long run. Um, a lot of times, the tubes they do require a lot of. I, Sometimes I get accused of being negative on tubes. I'm really not. It's just I want folks to recognize that it takes a lot of effort. Tubes aren't just, you know, yeah. it's not a one and done. It's like everything else. You don't just put it on there and walk away. There's a lot of stuff you have to do to make sure that they're that they're working. Um, typically, and when we're talking about that, we're talking about hardwoods. Typically, your conifers aren't going to be dealing with, you know, those type of things um, as far as herbivory until we get into like the winter. And then maybe we need to do something with the conifers, especially white pine, um, jack pine. Uh, maybe we need to protect the that apical meristem a little bit, the little top there, um, and we can do that pretty easily enough, pretty inexpensive. Um, there's, you know, it, it, I guess it just depends on where you are and what you want to put into it. So you can make a fence that looks goofy. Um, I mean, if you're not trying to impress the neighbors and all you care about is keeping a critter out or a goat in, um, you know, you can make a fence for pretty inexpensive. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's pretty effective. Yeah. Yeah, and there's been some uh, cost comparisons done, mm -hmm. tubes versus fencing. And um, so it's actually cheaper to put up mm. a fence than it is to try to tube all your trees. On a seedling basis. On a seedling yeah. basis, yeah. yeah. And that can go back to what your original planning was, too. If your original planning included oak and pine, if you were to say, for instance, um, kind of keep that pine in, in one area and the, and the oak in another area, you don't necessarily have to fence the whole thing. You can just protect that oak. And maybe that's a quarter acre. Maybe it's just a quarter acre fence that you have to put in. And the rest of it is really not going to be a problem. And you don't have to worry about critters chewing on those. And you just have to protect that oak a lot easier if you've set that up ahead of time instead of sprinkling oak all over the planting and trying to protect every single one that's all over. Yeah. Have you seen any... Um... You mentioned repellents earlier. Have you seen any promise in those or any variation and whether it's been effective or not effective under what conditions? Oh, we did a trial years ago, Joe. You were more involved with that than I was. Yeah, repellents. I mean, uh, we've actually done a couple of different, uh, both on conifers for winter protection because mm -hmm. um, browse occurs at different times. Yeah. By deer. Conifers tend to be browsed in the winter, nipping that bud. And then, as Jeremiah mentioned, it, you can do that as simple as. Um, putting a postcard over the top and stapling it yeah. over, so bud protector um, or repellents, getting those on in the late fall. Um, the problem you run into winter is once you get into winter, if you've had some rains and stuff, you may have washed off your repellents. Um, and, and it's not, winter's not a good time to try to be out spraying a liquid. And so you've got that challenge. But if, if you can get a repellent on and you keep it on, repellents do work. Mm. Um, and the same in the hardwoods, it's more of summer protection. And so you've got to, in the most critical flush to protect is the first flush of the year. Mm. That's when that plant is taking all of its reserves it has, putting everything into that first flush. Um, and you want to protect that flush. Um, mm. And if you get repellents put on that flush as soon as they flush, it does work. But again, not this year. Repellents will be working really well. But in a typical year, we're getting rain throughout that period. So yeah. you're having to come back every every few weeks putting more repellent down on the trees. But if you're willing to make that commitment, it does work. Yeah. So, and um, I don't know that I recommend one repellent over another. You know, it's deer, deer are interesting because I can be in one county and they're feeding on this and I can go to another county and they don't touch that. Right. You know, um, and so 
and I think repellents are kind of the same way. You've really got to figure out what is working for the deer that are in your area. Yeah. I know our so. colleague, Amanda McGraw, is coming out with some information about looking at uh, browse preference on tree species, and it varies across the state, kind of like you said. I think we've all seen that where you walk into one stand and they're hammering the white pine. Then we go to other places and they're not even touching the white pine. Yeah. And I think a lot of that's learned behavior. Um, yeah. We saw that in the nursery here before we had the fence. We went years without deer problems. And then all of a sudden, one year, deer started digging acorns on us. And yeah. within a month, it wasn't a deer digging acorns. It was 15 deer digging acorns. Yeah. And once they learn it, they don't unlearn it. Yeah. It's, yeah and I think that's similar with browse too. We have to get those seed collectors that are with a fist of the deer Stay off my swamp. Stay like off. Acorns. <laughs> I think there's so much that all of you learn through just growing seedlings in the nursery. And we don't really have time to cover I wanted to talk a little bit about germination. I think there's a ton of stuff that you guys see because you actually are germinating and watching these trees from very early stages that foresters could learn and apply to the field. I'm not going to go into that with you guys. <laughs> Maybe you're going, <laughs> um, but I just think there's just a ton of information to share that you've seen in the nursery. Um, that field foresters can use and i encourage field foresters to to talk with you guys about that and kind of learn learn from that um but overall uh i just want to thank all of you for just kind of going over these critical factors in growing trees um and sharing your experience with uh with all of us yeah, it's a fantastic discussion because it and i think we, I, every time we talk about stuff like this i always pick something up i'm like i didn't know that yeah. And it's just really scratching the surface, right? Because there's like a whole ton of different aspects to a lot of these topics. You know, I appreciate the time for us to get to do this because for the three of us, you know, we enjoy growing the seedlings and stuff, but what we really desire is for the landowners to be successful in getting their tree plantings established. Yeah. So um, the more, I guess, that we can share and help make that happen, that's part of our goal. Mm hmm should be a, like a thing for a nursery people when you retire you have to travel the state and go see the seedlings <laughs> that you've grown and like old home days you know yep. see how they're doing yep as long as they're still there yeah. Yeah. As long as they're still, uh, you know, happy landowners are a lot more fun than angry yeah. so speaking of rotating joe um how's that nursery manual coming along so you can pass all of that knowledge on to the next it's all right up here in my head. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> it seems a lot less important when you're the one leaving. Not the yeah. It's the That's next right. person that's gone. Oh. Yeah. But we are, we are trying to, yeah, we are trying to get ourselves in a situation where, you know, get some of that stuff documented and stuff like that. So, yeah. It's going to be like, what, 5,000 pages? Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank thank you all for joining us on Silvacast, and I'm sure we'll be talking again in the future. That was good. Thank you. Thank you. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is our regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, whatever you send us, and share them with our listeners. Brad, this past month, we've received more great show ideas from listeners, which is great. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, one of those suggestions was to continue something that we've tried to do in the past, and that's interview folks who have made significant contributions to silviculture before they retire. And I won't mention any names here. This person gave us suggestions, but we haven't talked to those people yet, so I won't say anything. Um, but it's a bit like episodes you may recall we've done in the past with Ralph Nyland, Susan Stout, and last month, Pat Rose, because he's retiring this summer. And uh, I really like those shows because silviculture is so much a science of, I'll say, accumulated knowledge and understanding. And it's just like today when we talked with Joe, uh, Roger, and Jeremiah. I feel like it's really important to capture that experience in some way and just something we've tried to do on silviculture. Yeah. I'm, you know, part of it is getting the basic knowledge and then it's the application of that knowledge. And they're the ones who have seen it. They've kind of been there through the whole thing. So 
being able to pick their brains is great. But I agree, we might want to be careful with some of our guests in the future because then they'll ask themselves, am I retiring? Do I, am I, do I not know about something <laughs> well, coming up here? Not, that's not a requirement. Yeah, well, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. But I think, and there's just so many times that people uh, don't put down that experience or pass it on necessarily. So right. as for example, with, um, with Joe Roger and Jeremiah, you know, will that knowledge get passed down to the next superintendent of the nursery or will that all have to start again? So capturing some of that is really important. Well, it'd be cool if Silvocast can be a way to help maybe with that, right? Because we've looked at trying to transfer knowledge from science into the field. And this is maybe looking a little bit at that art side of it and trying to get Mm -hmm. that into the field too. So if people know of somebody that they think that maybe we should have a conversation with, let us know. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvcast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. You can reach us at UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing wfc at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file with your question or a comment if you like. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. And take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Susan Barrett, Editor-in-Chief, Logan Badan, our IT master, theme music by Paul Freider, and of course, UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center.